Kristen Rawls. I'm Jeff Eaton. And this is Christian Rightcast. It's a podcast in which we historicize and explain the American Christian right to help you understand U.S. politics today. Welcome. Welcome. Yes, I'll just acknowledge before we get started that I have a little bit of a cold. Probably <laughs> a cold. It's pr- I did get a COVID test, but it's, I may have some coughing and sniffles today. It, it's a terrible time to have <laughs> allergies or a cold. It, it's, it's awful. Yeah. 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 So today, I guess we'll just dive in. We wanted to give a little bit of an overview of the people that we'll be talking about in future episodes. I don't think we're going to have an exhaustive discussion today. We have not created... We have not created an academic list of categories and what we're going to lay out today is something that Christian conservatives themselves disagree about. It's, it's basically who is the Christian right? Yeah, who, who counts? What is this big mess of political, religious, cultural stuff? Who's in it? What counts? <laughs> right. And so we tried to come up with a list of the most influential movements within the Christian right and the themes because... We think that they act as a pretty unified, excuse me, voting block for the Republican Party. And so we're just going to start to lay those out. Now, the largest group of people that we're going to talk about is going to be Protestant evangelicals. and uh, White Protestant evangelicals, too. Yes, yes, white Protestant evangelicals. We're not going to get into all of the details now, but that's another key. It is, yes. And this group is vast, and it is divided into countless different denominations and sects. But we have come up with a little bit of a broad outline of some of the most influential belief systems that comprise the contemporary Christian right. And we're going to spend most of our time in this podcast today talking about them because we think they are the, the most influential drivers of this particular political program. So for, for I'm going to, I'm going to let Jeff take it from here because I, I just realized there's a, yeah. <laughs> well, and I think you, you raise a good point. There's a lot of controversy even inside of the Christian right about who is the Christian right, mm-hmm. what its relationship to the whole of Christianity is, and who falls under the label. Like even from outside observers, there's a d- disagreement about like how to regard the Christian right. Some people say, oh, the problem is they're not real Christians. They're not really acting like real Christians ought to. And Chrissy Stroop, who we've mentioned before on the show, has actually written a lot about that. The, yeah. the danger of applying like a no true Scotsman rule to the Christian right's engagement with people that they would otherwise condemn as immoral. There's the idea that, oh, they just don't understand the Bible, or it's a radical fringe, or they're just being manipulated by politicians. Or There's lots of ways of trying to contextualize this, but I think they miss the mark. And it is complicated, though, because it's tons of different groups with overlapping beliefs and sometimes opposing beliefs. There are groups inside of the Christian right that think the others in the Christian right are heretics, essentially. Mm-hmm. But what we're focusing on is generally stuff that apply to most of the subgroups, even if not all of them. The differences and divisions and the cross-pollinations between them are important historically, where like one group may have very different like theological beliefs, but the themes that really animate that group may have spread into other groups over time, like a deep concern about prayer in schools or something like that. And there are unifying qualities, a tendency towards authoritarian leadership structures and like societal structures and ways of relating to authority, a focus on like certainty and the -hmm. need for legitimacy and purity and stuff like that. And they tend to reject a lot of broad labels. And oftentimes members of the religious right tend to see themselves as like the real true believers, even to the exclusion of other people in the group. I want want to add one thing before you go into the the definitions. One thing we've discussed, and I think we are going to really focus on in this podcast, is discussing this movement from the pre- 
World War II anti-communist period to really get beginning during the Cold War and during opposition to the civil rights movement. And so we, we want to focus really for the most part on the past 60 years we're not gonna go back to the a lot we may at some point but for the most part we're gonna talk about this contemporary movement as we understand it imagine yourself in 1100 Um, (laughs) yeah and i think it's as somebody who has a tendency to go on really deep dives i can find like the long-term historical trends that inform this stuff very interesting but it's not necessarily important for someone to know like what particular church schism, a particular idea came out of 600 years ago. So very broadly, especially inside of like the Protestant tradition, the kinds of themes that we're talking about in these groups. The first one is like this idea of like primitivism and restorationism. The idea that we should return to some earlier, purer form of the faith that today's church has messed up or complicated somehow. That's one big theme. Evangelicalism, not necessarily like a specific church denomination, but rather a focus on individual people's internal decision to become, quote, born again and get into a relationship with God. That is like an individual act and decision. And then also the practice of going out and preaching and getting people to make that decision. That's the evangelicalism thread. Then there's Pentecostalism and like the charismatic movement. That's the idea that like supernatural acts, speaking in tongues or prophesying about the future or miracles and healing people. Like the idea that is actually a critical part of faith and it does happen and it is a normal day-to-day part of life if you are in a relationship with God. Another thread is fundamentalism. Now that gives you a really broad label, but I'm specifically talking about like fundamentalism as like an anti-modern reactionary movement like it's again a push against like biblical criticism or evolution or secularism as like a civil a civic government trend that idea that modernity and secularism is an enemy that has to be pushed back against and the final thread is reconstructionism or dominionism the labels are sometimes argued about but it's basically the idea that civil society and government should be run on god's laws that whether that means somebody thinks yes we should actually have all the old testament laws on the books or they think that's extreme but still they like this idea of you know yeah the country's laws should reflect god's laws that thread is an important one so we've got the primitivism evangelicalism Pentecostalism and the charismatic movement, fundamentalism as an anti-secularist pushback, and then the reconstructionist idea of merging the principles of civic structure and law and government and God's laws. Those are like three big ones, even if different denominations and groups don't label themselves as those things. So let's let's contextualize this a little bit. So I mentioned fundamentalism. Lots of things get called fundamentalism, and it's a term that can be applied to lots of different religious groups, but specifically inside of Protestant Christianity, fundamentalism was like an an inside of the church dust up, a theological argument in the early 1900s that really came to a head in like the 1910s and 20s. And it was a reaction against theological liberalism and cultural modernism. There was a big controversy about the fact that more biblical scholars were starting to look at the Bible as a work of literature, as like this was a book written at a particular point in time, and you could start look and you could start examining and studying it in that context. And but that would sometimes lead people to conclusions that traditionalists didn't like. Things like maybe there wasn't a virgin birth, maybe this is just a story, things like that. And fundamentalists were reacted very strongly against that. They other things that they felt were like real existential threats were the growing popularity of the theory of evolution and broad acceptance of that. And like the secularization of society, the idea that the, the world might, you know, not presuppose that there is a special role for the Bible as a source of truth, and it's just another book. These are things that fundamentalism as a movement inside the, the church reacted against. And 
like really pushed hard on. And it, ironically, what mainline Protestant denominations and theologians pretty much won that argument inside of the church. Fundamentalism lost. And for quite a few decades after that, like you know, the teens and 20s, when that fight happened, fundamentalism was underground. They had like, some book publishers and there were preachers and stuff like that, but it was not a dominant force inside of the church. And it only really reemerged decades later in the sort of in the era that we're going to be talking about later. And today, there are very few people that self-identify as fundamentalism, but those principles of fundamentalism that it fought for really ended up spreading out and essentially eating a lot of the church that thought it had won that argument from the inside. And a lot of the ideas behind fundamentalism are now much very broadly accepted inside of the Christian right. And inside um, of evangelicalism yes, generally. Yeah. It, inside of evangelicalism and other denominations that would not consider themselves fundamentalism, things mm -hmm. like evolutionism. Evolution is an attempt to stamp out God, stuff like that. Or the belief in the inerrancy of the Bible. The yes, the yeah, Bible. the belief that like yeah. the Bible is literally true and is always correct, and if you think there's a contradiction, that means you've read it wrong, that kind of stuff. Those are right. fundamentalism-like points that they staked out in that era. Pentecostalism is another thread, like the charismatic movement is how a lot of people have heard of it. It was actually happening around the same time as fundamentalism, like in the early 1900s. The basic idea is that in the Bible, there are stories of people like speaking in you know languages that they didn't understand, speaking in tongues. And Things like healing the sick or having prophecies about what would happen in the future or having what's called words of wisdom where someone might come up to you and say, I have a problem. And you say, yes, it's your sister, Beth. She's sick and you're worried about her. And they go, oh my gosh, how did you know? God told me. That's a word of wisdom in like Pentecostal and charismatic parlance. The idea behind Pentecostalism is basically that this is normal and proper for life to be like that and filled with those things if you're in a good relationship with God. And there had been little pockets of that all throughout church history of people doing these things. But for the most part, for a long time, the majority of the Christian church thought that was like a thing in the past that happened in certain Bible stories. Pentecostalism was built on the idea that no, that's now, that's today, that's a normal part of how things should work. And if you don't, if you aren't able to do those things or can't convince and convincingly feign that you are doing something <laughs> like speaking in tongues, you are viewed as not blessed by the spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Right. Yeah. yeah and that's like a core part of Pentecostalism as doctrinal belief system. The idea that one of the key indicators that someone has become a Christian and is connected to God again is being baptized in the spirit and speaking in tongues or something like that. It actually, like, it, Pentecostalism is a much bigger slice of the population than people tend to think. It's, I think 16% of the country's white Protestant congregations are Pentecostal. Mm -hmm. But interestingly enough, 65% of the Protestant churches that are predominantly African-American are Pentecostal. And part of the history of that is that William Joseph Seymour, who was an African-American preacher, was one of the key figures in the revival in Los Angeles in the early 1900s that gave birth to Pentecostalism. Oh, now, I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. It almost immediately split off into like white and black brown branches of Pentecostalism <laughs> as the churches want to do. But that's a big part of Pentecostalism. Well, history. and I would argue that the Black Pentecostal churches are not, some may be part of the what we understand as the contemporary Christian right, but many are not. Right. And there's a whole twist of the civil rights movement and white supremacy being yeah. part of that. And that's why even though there's there may be alignment on certain social and doctrinal issues inside of Christianity, African-American churches tend not to be as closely associated with it because of that particular split. Exactly. Anyways, but okay, so the charismatic movement, which I mentioned related to that, yes. Pentecostalism, when it initially formed in like the early 1900s, 
much like fundamentalism, was basically like the the weird cousin of the much more accepted mainline Protestant churches. Mm -hmm. And if you started thinking, hey, yeah, I should totally prophesy and speak in tongues, you were gently asked to go find a church where that was acceptable and not hang out with the Presbyterians or whatever Mm -hmm. for a long time. Now, in the 1960s, that started changing first in the first ironically in the presbyterian church but like it hit other denominations like lutherans catholics evangelicals pentecostal practices of that like embrace of the supernatural and stuff like that started taking off in the 60s and became a cross-denominational movement that really spread like wildfire in like the 60s and 70s inside of the christian church not even just protestants and that had a big impact on like the culture of the church. Interestingly enough, the charismatic movement also dialed back some of the hardline stuff that you mentioned, Kristen, like the idea that, well, if you're really a Christian, you speak in tongues, full stop. Otherwise, you're not connected to God. The charismatic movement, it's more of an open embrace of all that stuff, but it doesn't hold that it's required. Not always. I have certainly known of people within what I would call charismatic churches where that was a teaching and as was teaching about healings and the idea that if you were chronically ill that that and God wasn't healing you that was because you were not in touch with the Holy Spirit and and there's definitely a range of beliefs on that but like the charismatic movement as a big picture it right. you know that's yeah. holding to that stuff isn't necessarily something that everybody in the charismatic movement holds to, but there are definitely those pockets where oh you, you've you're sick you've got a chronic illness that means there's sin in your life and you got mm-hmm. to get right with God or you need to have more faith or something like that. Mm-hmm. An interesting side sh- offshoot of the charismatic movement, or at least let's say a parallel thing that was heavily influenced by it in the '60s and '70s was the Jesus People movement. It was like essentially like a counterculture hippie thing. And if you've ever wondered why like Bob Dylan had like those couple of years where he wrote a lot of songs about Jesus and like why there's all these like long haired hippie bands singing songs about being born again in certain eras. It happened with an early member of Fleetwood Mac. He left. Yeah, it was a huge dominant force in like hippie and counterculture movements in the 60s and 70s. And it left a big footprint in pop culture. Although the Jesus People movement died out pretty quickly by the 80s there were just like a couple of little holdout groups by that time it had spawned off new denominations and the idea of non-denominational churches Mm -hmm. that didn't they weren't part of those old denominate old stuffy christian denominations they were just living things out like like jesus wants us to yeah and it also had a huge influence on the eventual evolution of the christian rock music scene which is another fun thing but and and also on elevator praise music like repetitive simplistic Mm -hmm. songs that yeah and again i think that jesus people movement the idea that christianity could be part of a counterculture movement and a youth movement even though the jesus movement as a thing tapered off i think that excitement about the the idea that it could be a counterculture youth thing is something that you see pop up a lot in modern christian like youth group culture and stuff like that you do oh go ahead Oh, I, I was just going to say. Now you know, you, you've got in in our episode outline here. You've got a you've got a fun one, like one of the <laughs> yeah. Million, so I'm going to talk a little bit. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. I've, so I was going to talk a little bit about reconstructionism, and um, and it's fairly new, right? Yeah, uh, it's it's Puritanism. It's modern Puritanism that what it's based, it comes from Calvinism. It's a fundamentalist form of Calvinism. That is a, that's a really a 20th century heir to the, the early Puritans. So there aren't a lot of people today who would claim to be reconstructionists, but the movement is going to be very influential in setting the political program of the contemporary Christian right it's really considered the intellectual underpinning of the contemporary homeschooling movement and is 
particularly influential with people who homeschool for religious reasons. So even if they don't realize that yes. it's reconstructionism, because a lot of the curriculum and the support materials for homeschoolers comes from reconstructionist organizations. And the Homeschool Legal Defense Association, which is the main lobbying group for Christian homeschoolers, was started by members of a Reconstructionist Orthodox Presbyterian, formerly a, a different kind of Presbyterian church in Northern Virginia. So the so it's really very influential today. Its theological framework was developed by the extremist Calvinist theologian. Rusas John Rushduni, the son of Armenian immigrants, in his three-volume, almost 2,000-page long tome, Institutes of Biblical Law. And that was written in like the early 70s, right? Mm, yeah, but, um, I didn't do as much with the timeline as you. I'm sorry. Oh, copyright 1980. The first volume came out before that. And that may not be a first printing. I'm not, not actually sure. He had developed his ideas prior to 1980. He was, he opposed racial integration in the South. He was very influenced by the neo-Confederates and the mythology of the Civil War being a lost but righteous cause. So he was a, an intellectual heir to sort of John Calvin's theory of predestination, the idea that God is sovereign and that people don't have free will, we believe that God chooses chooses or predestines specific people who are called the elect for salvation and damns the rest to hell. And this is believed to be as a result of the grace, the grace of God, because everybody it's believed is inherently sinful and born, just born deserving of hell. That is not an uncontroversial idea inside of Christianity. Like Calvinism, no. the, the debate about that can consume earnest youth groups for weeks. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Rush Dooney is going to argue that it's the duty of Christian parents to remove their children from secular humanist public schools and either teach them at home or build up reconstructionist Christian schools for an, alter an alternative Christian education. He's going to argue for very distinctive gender roles, that men are to participate in labor and public life, and that a woman's place is in the home as a wife and mother. His politics favor libertarian governance in which Christians... So it's not worldwide Christian dominion the way that some some denominations believe. It's more of libertarian Christian fiefdoms that practice very strict biblical law, according to a Calvinist understanding of what the biblical law is. So some of this law involves the stoning of what Rushduni called unchaste women, disobedient children, and homosexuals like a great guy <laughs> what is a funny thing about him is that i've talked to frank schaefer about him and he met him as a child and described him as fun and friendly and you do he didn't you didn't know when you talked to him that these were the kinds of things he was um he was you were just chatting with him he wasn't he trying was, to stone no you. he wasn't trying to... <laughs> as i said he's a racist he's influenced by neo-confederates who support racial segregation he's he was also i i'm speaking in present tense but he's dead he's not he died in 2001 he was also a rabid anti-semite and he promoted what is known as presuppositional apologetics, which is basically the idea that it is impossible for non-Christians to develop a, a correct moral framework, that they're just lost and totally incapable of being good people or doing good or knowing anything at all because they are and, not Christian. And I think I, I, I don't want to... We've got so much material. I don't want to take us in a rabbit hole, but yeah. I think that theme is one that is really fascinating because even amongst people who would never claim like the most extreme of Rush Dooney's views, yeah. like stoning, stoning disobedient children for crying out loud, right. that theme of 
oh, if you don't have, if you don't believe in God, how can you possibly even have laws? Right. Stuff like that is still very influential. Those things that he really, you know, stuck in the ground and said, here's an important principle. Many of those things have spread widely inside of what, it, what we now call the Christian right. Right, right. And in fact, a lot of the Christian right today has claimed him as an intellectual heir. So the numbers in terms of people who actually identify as Reconstructionists are, are pretty small. They are concentrated in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church. And in some cases, but I wouldn't say all in the Presbyterian Church of America, which is an evangelical, conservative Presbyterian church. And these numbers are pretty small. Most of what we understand as the leadership of the Christian right aligned in the 1980s around by, by calling Rashtuni's works an influence. This included Baptist ministers like Jerry Falwell, the charismatic televangelist Pat Robertson invited Rush Dooney as a guest on his 700 Club show multiple times. He was friendly with the evangelist Francis Schaefer. That's the father of Frank Schaefer, who I just mentioned, who started the Libri community in Switzerland and who argued, for example, that violent opposition to abortion was going to be necessary. So he was very much in dialogue with the whole host of Christian extremists we've heard of, even though they're not all Orthodox Presbyterians. And he is very popular today in the homeschooling movement. I mentioned the Homeschool Legal Defense Association. I believe the Botkin twins, who are these, they're Christian homeschooling influencers, basically are big fans. It's also, so I just want to, I want to tie this up by saying it's really possible to argue that Reconstructionism has in many ways provided the political framework for today's Christian right, which includes libertarian politics. That's why so many of them were so attracted to the politics of Rand Paul. A strict opposition to abortion in all cases, persecution of LGBTQ people, strict divisions between men and women, authoritarian discipline of children, even if you're not going to stone them, <laughs> the exodus from public schools, and white supremacy. Yeah, so today his legacy is most directly carried out, I would say, by his son-in-law, Gary North, who formed the Reconstructionist Chalcedon Foundation to promote his father-in-law's views. And North actually worked for Ron Paul as his research assistant. And he has in, he has he's seen as more of an accelerationist who has welcomed social collapse that would allow that, that would allow these independent Christian theocracies to form. Just like the, again, you can, it, it's interesting to see how this kind of dovetails with like classic political conservatism and the emphasis on federalism and the idea that a strong central government is a threat to yeah. local communities and local states that dovetails really well with this idea that, yeah, those small little communities and stuff like that, that's yeah. where... and the idea the that secular governance is a threat to Christians, right? Right. And also, so I, do, I did want to add, because you mentioned dominionism earlier, dominionism is more of an umbrella term for the idea that the that particularly the United States it exists in other countries too but should follow some kind of biblical law that is in line with God's will or whatever and also yeah. that it's it has a special role and in, in God's plan right. that the United States is this shining beacon to the world mm -hmm. not just because of democracy but because it's godly right this is what the Puritans thought yeah and reconstructionism is the much more detailed framework that involves stoning of children. Yeah. I, I shouldn't <laughs> laugh. It's just, it, I, and I think this is the challenge we're talking about some of this. Like uh, yeah. there's lots of people who would say, oh no, never. But like when you drill into some of the extreme forms of this, it, right. it, there's almost an absurd quality to some of it for yes. outside observers. <laughs> Absolutely. I want to also talk a little bit about what I'm going to call primitivists. This yeah, is, this is fascinating to me. <laughs> this is an academic 
catch-all term. No one actually identifies as a primitivist. Another word for this is restorationist. And these are people who are trying to restore Christianity to what they believe are its ancient roots. This the inc- way Jesus and the apostles did things. Yes. And this is going to include a lot of very different types of groups who are by no means united under a single theology. The unifying belief of these groups, and the reason we put them in one category to discuss them today, is that they are all, as I said, trying to restore Christianity to its ancient roots and practicing a purer form of Christianity than what they view as what the Catholics are doing, or even what the high church that is liturgical Protestants are doing, like Episcopalians or even Presbyterians. They think they are getting to something in a much more distilled, truly Christian form. They're getting rid of all of the cruft that humans have added and going back to just us and God. In their mind, some of the most ancient Christian churches that exist today are Catholic, but this is their view. And much of the idea that there's some sort of idealized 1950s America to return to, a lot of the ideal that they're talking about is also a constructed imagined thing. Exactly. So this is going to include a lot of very different types of groups of people. When you meet Christians that you hear talking about practicing Jewish laws, who are actually, when really they're practicing a bastardized, simplistic, Gentile interpretation of Jewish law, that comes from uh, this restorationist impulse that we're going to try to do what the early Christians were doing. But th- this distinction also includes much more established groups like the Baptists and other groups that practice immersive adult baptism in which your head is literally dunked underwater. Baptists are important because one of they're one of the most, if not the most important denomination in the American South, the Southern Baptists. Not all Baptists are Southern Baptists, but they the Southern Baptists are very important in the South. And and as a result of the influence of the Southern Baptists, the politics of the Christian right have often really had a stranglehold over the region's politics. The Southern Baptist Church is where a lot of it really comes from in the South. The South's biggest revivalist preacher, Billy Graham, was a, was a Baptist preacher. and Someone you may have heard of may if have. you <laughs> at all were alive and adjacent to <laughs> Christians or televangelism in like the 70s and 80s. Billy yeah. Graham iconic. Right. So now something that complicates this is that the Southern Baptist Convention, if you followed these politics in the 90s, had a takeover by a reconstructionist leadership. This is, which is not historically, Baptists are not Calvinists, but there is some influence in reconstructionism now. So I'll just move on from that because it gets very complicated and confusing. (laughs) I don't think we have to lay all of it out here. I I tried Um, to start making a spreadsheet and it very quickly got to like thousands of cells and I had the yarn wall, conspiracy wall. (laughs) This is literally what scholars of religion do. So moving on from Baptists, restorationism is also going to include Anabaptists and by that groups like the Amish, Mennonites, and Brethren churches. Now, although members of the Anabaptist traditions traditionally eschewed government involvement in the like voting or serving in an official government capacity, the Christian right has made some inroads with them in the 20th during the 20th century in terms of advancing conservative politics, especially against LGBTQ rights and abortion rights. And I also want to add that they they tend to... The German... There's a very strong ethnic German nationalist influence within this these groups, and they tend to romanticize their history of nonviolence in a way that is very ahistorical, including their conscientious objector status in World War II. In a future episode, I'm going to argue that the, that 
this had at least as much to do with German nationalism among ethnic German Mennonites in the United States who are still German nationalists who valorize their quote unquote ethnic status as, as it does with any principled commitment to peace. So this plus the uh, earlier history of anti-communism or fears about communism and opposition to abortion rights and rights for queer people is why they belong in what we're calling the Christian right. Although I know many who would disagree with me. So, and but again, that's I think a critical theme here is that there are some groups that are very much on board with the social and societal and movement stuff that like fundamentalisms, you know, mm-hmm. concerns about evolution and and biblical literalism and stuff like that, even if they aren't part of the of the reconstructionist political agenda they still feel aligned when, you know, yeah. a lot of key hot button issues are being talked about. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <sighs> and okay. some of these groups, Anabaptists historically are a very small percentage yes. of the the big picture of American Christianity, but they're influential because they have certain ideas like the history of nonviolence that you were talking about that they yeah. emphasize. That's a distinctive idea that they bring to the table. Also, there are a lot of them in Pennsylvania. If you're talking about specific swing states and elections, if you can get if you can get conservative Mennonites to vote, you can maybe swing an election. Yeah. And again, it's an ongoing. It's there, an there, ongoing. Yeah. Many still do not vote. But in recent decades, they have they there has been a lot of outreach to them as potential conservative voters and many have followed suit especially in breakoff groups there's one in pennsylvania called charity christian fellowship i think so anyway so, yeah i'm getting too deep into this <laughs> uh, it, it, it's extremely hard not to it really um, is <clears throat> so all right up to this point and talking mostly about the Protestant church, all of the myriad of different subgroups that exist under there and their influences. But the Christian right also has a couple of important other elements. Conservative Catholics are definitely a part of the Christian right. And again, because both Kristen and I come from a Protestant background, we don't have as much direct experiential like background right. with this. I think it's important to acknowledge its role and its place in the Christian right. Definitely. And I live in New England now, and they are the Christian right up here, pretty much. (laughs) They are the reason Um, we have, we have conscience laws that that where you can be denied birth control in Connecticut for anyway, but yeah, they, yeah. So like the the conservative Catholicism, like there's a lot of threads that connect it to the modern Christian right, like conceptually, like there's been a like really strong history of Mm anti-communism in Catholicism worldwide, like ever since the 1800s. I think Pope Pius, I think the 11th, I'll have to double, I'm I'm not really up on all my popes, (laughs) but like there was specifically like papal edicts against communism, like in the 1800s and stuff like that. But like also conservative, like Catholics as a group were very much outsiders in Protestant America for a long time. The KKK was an explicitly anti-Catholic group in addition to like anti-Semitic and anti-Black. John F. Kennedy, um, when he ran for president, was accused of Americans couldn't trust him because he serves the Pope. So like this idea of Catholics being outsiders to like American civic religion, which was deeply Protestant in nature. Not quite white yet. yet. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um, And uh, yeah. But like at the same time, there were also Catholic figures that were key like participants in like the populist, like the populist themes that now feed into the Christian right. Father Cooley in the 1930s had a really popular like racist and anti-Semitic radio show that mobilized both white Catholics and Protestants to a lot of a lot of deeply racist and anti-Semitic mm-hmm. like beliefs during the World War II period. And like abortion and ethics of life issues, anti-abortion, you know, opposition to abortion, opposition to birth control, opposition to euthanasia and mm-hmm. stuff like that. Those are issues that have always been like a much deeper thread in Catholicism mm-hmm. than the Protestant. 
Protestants essentially discovered anti-abortion activism in like the 70s. And that became a bridge between conservative Catholics and Protestants when Protestants essentially showed up to that party. And then in the 60s, like the charismatic movement, as the practices of Pentecostalism spread in other denominations and groups, that also became a bridge between Catholics and Protestants. My parents, actually, when they first got involved in the charismatic Jesus people movement, and that was via via like Lutherans that had become charismatics, and then they ended up meeting lots of Catholics. Who would become charismatic. So, oh. like, they, that was how they knew Catholics. But also, the conservative thread in Catholicism is also heavily influenced by basically like Vatican II, which was a Vatican II electric boogaloo. Anyways, it's basically like in 1962, big meeting of all the bishops and the leadership in the Catholic Church to iron out lots of doctrinal positions. There was a lot of deep opposition among conservative Catholics to decisions that came out of Vatican II. That's where things like, hey, maybe we should do mass in English rather than Latin were established. And a lot of people were angry about some of those changes. But generally speaking, the post-1960s Catholic conservatism movement it's animated by a lot of the criticism of like modernization and ecumenical outreach to other branches of the faith, opposition to church reforms, stuff that is themes that are also familiar to Protestants who've been opposed to those same things inside of the church. Amy Coney Barrett, who just was, she's our new Supreme Court justice, is a product of Catholic, like an, an extreme extremism in Catholic politics and also Catholic, a Catholic charismatic group, the People of Praise that was mentioned. Mm-hmm. She was a member of that group and it's one of those conservative Catholic charismatic groups. So there's lots of interesting threads that all interconnect this stuff. We're going to be digging a little deeper into this. One of the interesting things is that historically Catholics have not been like conservative GOP voters. And even today, like the split is more like 60-40 of Catholics in the United States voting for the GOP, whereas with like evangelicals, it's 80% to 85% voting GOP. Is that so like for it's nowhere white near... Catholics? Because I wonder if... That's a good question. That's just broadly over the whole... I wonder like, if that's you know, because they're more racially diverse than... I don't know. That is a good question. We should dig into those stats. But like broadly speaking, conservative Catholicism is an important part of the religious right, yeah. but it's also nowhere near... It, it's not as dominant as it is in Protestant evangelicalism. Yeah, like um, most Catholics that you meet are probably not part of this. But but yeah, but it's still... It, it is very important in New England uh, where it has... Where Catholics have a lot more political power than, say, Protestants generally and are going to be pushing for restrictions on abortion and things like conscience laws for doctors and healthcare providers of all kinds. And then the last group that I'm going to talk about here is Mormons. Now, I am very much not a Mormon, but (laughs) they're an important part of this religious right mix. It's a very small group numerically. Like Mormons are like, I think, one and a half percent of the United States. But they've become a key group in the Christian right. Mm-hmm. Now, interestingly enough, technically Mormons are considered like primitivists or restorationists in like the in the umbrella sort of description that you gave that let's return to a purer form of the faith impulse. Yeah. It was actually founded in the 1800s by a guy named Joseph Smith. He said that he found golden tablets with the history of lost civilizations that Jesus visited in North America after he spent time in, after he lived in, in, in Israel. There's a whole, like a whole thread of the underlying doctrines and beliefs of Mormonism that are really very different and rooted in deeply different historical contexts than the rest of Protestantism or Catholicism. And for a long time, there was heated debate. Christians did not consider Mormons Christians. They were just some out there group that was doing stuff. And many and, still don't. Right. Yeah. And it, it's like, I think one of the evangelical books that I had growing up was called Kingdom of the Cults. And it was a breakdown <laughs> of all the groups that the this this writer were believe were cults and Mormonism was in there along with the you know, along with lots of different groups. <laughs> um, but we also listed like Islam as oh a Oh my cult. gosh. Yeah. It, it, 
stretches the definition beyond a lot of usefulness. Which Christians like, do, yeah. Right-wing Christians do that. That's how they understand yeah. cults like we talked about um, last time. But Mormonism, its doctrines are very different. Like they don't believe in yeah. the Trinity, like the idea that there's God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit not on the table. Um, it is, they, but they think they're three separate Yes, entities. like the... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh Lord, no, we we can't get into what the we can't get into Trinitarianism. <laughs> okay. That's whole careers about that. Sorry. But uh, but it is a different like it, it is a point of deep differentiation from a lot of other yes. Protestant groups. The large families are a big part of Mormon culture, mm-hmm. and indoctrinally, having a large family is like a mechanism for world change and even after this world is over what happens to you in the afterlife is connected to like your family and your community and stuff like that so like a lot of the things that we think of as like family values type stuff and the reconstructionist the reconstructionist themes that you were talking about earlier the idea of a small self-governing group and mm-hmm. the importance of the family, those resonate in Mormon culture, even if they arrived at them via different via different mechanisms. Mm-hmm. Interestingly enough, there's a sort of a Pentecostal connection in the early 1930s, like Mormonism, when it was first forming, there was like accounts of them speaking in tongues and doing stuff that 60 years later, Pentecostals would be doing in the Protestant church, but that kind of just faded out and the church officially discouraged it. But there's also a history of violent conflict too, like American Orthodoxy and Mormonism did not get along. Whether or not you think that was people punishing Mormons because they did illegal things or persecuting Mormons because they were an unpopular, they were true believers who were being persecuted for their beliefs that's a debate a lot of people have, but for better or worse, let's just say for worse, Mormons were, they did, they were on the receiving end of violent persecution in some cases. And Utah became like the heart of Mormonism, mostly because Mormons all went there. They essentially migrated from other parts of the United States and made their home there. We talked about family values. That includes like specific gender roles, like very specific definitions of what constitutes family values. And some of that came out of a very strong post-war PR effort that the Mormon church made after having spent so long being the outsiders and being essentially, you know, reviled by large swaths of the church, they really worked hard to establish themselves as like the Boy Scouts slash Girl Scouts of American culture. The Mormon Tabernacle Choir was a part of that. And there's a great book called Mormonism in American Politics by Columbia University Press that has some essays covering a lot of different themes like that. Hmm. But they're also very evangelical in nature, using that broad definition of evangelical that I talked about earlier. Like Mormons all do extended missionary work throughout the world to evangelize. They do language training so that they'll be ready to go out and preach the gospel to different cultures, stuff like that. And a critical figure in Mormon political, like, political activism is a guy named Ezra Taft Benson. He was actually Eisenhower's agriculture, secretary of agriculture. He'd worked as a, he'd he'd been involved in farming and agriculture in Utah, which was a big part of Utah's economy for in the pre-war and post-war era. But after like his, after working as agriculture secretary, he ended up really falling in with a bunch of the staunch anti-communist, the the communists are everywhere and they're the greatest threat to, the, to our nation. He really absorbed that from the people he worked with in the Eisenhower administration. And then he ended up coming back and becoming one of the core leaders of the Mormon church after that. And his long-term influence on the conservative political bent of Mormonism was significant. Mm -hmm. There was that cross-pollination with that anti-communist thing. And then 
a, a final theme that I think is interesting is all of the folks that I know, a number of people who are either currently practicing Mormons or ex-Mormons, one thing that came up was the Equal Rights Amendment in the 1970s mm-hmm. was a huge catalyst for broader political re-engagement with, of Mormons reaching out and becoming part of like broader American politics very deliberately and explicitly because the Equal Rights Amendment was perceived as like a threat against this fundamental conception of the family yeah. that they felt wasn't just culturally important, but like spiritually and doctrinally important. And in a lot of ways laid the groundwork for their sort of becoming a part of this broader movement. Right. So one ongoing sort of side thread that we're going to be talking about at times in different episodes is the influence of new religious movements shaping these different ideologies. Christian science, the movement started by Mary Baker Eddy and New Thought, the really positive thinking in the United States is going to merge a little bit with Pentecostalism to produce the kinds of televangelists we see doing healings and things like Benny Hinn does is a, a like a merger of new thought ideology and and, and Pentecostal, Pentecostal. Yeah. right and also let's see yeah and so new thought so, is so going to leave religious its, movement yeah an umbrella term it yeah. is basically like oh yeah it's, it's what some people like it's what we specifically said we weren't going to label as cults, cults because right. that's too specific and implies a lot of stuff that isn't necessarily accurate with mm-hmm. all of them but like it's these small emergent little religious groups yeah. that pop up often on the fringes of um american re- of religious of more established religious belief or whatnot and some of them right grow to become more established other like ones the mormons have yeah. started out as a new religious movement and are really pr- a pretty established religion at this point in the united states yeah. at least so we will probably talk about groups like the jehovah's witness witnesses because they are focused on the apocalypse and on the idea of the rapture we really think that even though a lot of even though Jehovah's Witnesses generally eschew any government involvement, we think the eschatological emphasis on the end times is gonna is important, and they will probably come up in the course of talking about that. Also, 60s and 70s counterculture movements like the Children of God will we will occasionally touch on these kinds of groups that and that dovetails with the Jesus movement counterculture it stuff does. there's crossover there and the idea that they were doing something pure and new and revolutionary in the case of the children of god it was really becoming a child ex- sexual exploitation cult we will call them a cult because yeah, they were yeah i'm comfortable with that label yeah and they saw themselves as many of these kinds of counterculture groups did as a final the the final I don't know the word. They were going to fight a ty- like a, a final battle, an end times battle in, in this totalizing supernatural war in the end times. The children of God, they saw themselves as prophets of the end times who were going to rise up and lead the fight against the Antichrist. So, And there's a group called the... No time to get into it now, but there's a new apostolic reformation movement right. that they see themselves as just a part of the charismatic movement, mm-hmm. but they're really a distinct emergent thing. In a very yeah. strange twist of events, a lot oh, of very right. highly visible figures in the new apostolic reformation movement have been extremely vigorously pro-Trump. Yes. And like they have YouTube channels like talking about how like basically prophesying and saying like I've received a vision from God. This is what's going to happen. God is has his hand on Trump and is protecting him and the thing Trump is doing, he is God's agent on earth. Yeah. It's very wild and just bananas to watch if you are not familiar with the that movement 
But even if you are, it's it's a very troubling, very direct politicization of those Pentecostal and charismatic themes. It's where we're getting phrases that like satanic pregnancies and things that seem to come oh, out of boy. nowhere that no one in the news understands. The, the, uh-huh. Yeah, the, the crossover between some of the weirdest stuff in the QAnon movement and the Christian like Pentecostal and charismatic fringe movements that have essentially be a, become a cross-pollinating influence on QAnon mm-hmm. is probably a whole other episode. But oh, yeah. That's something you may be hearing about in the news in inexplicable, familiar catchphrase ways. Yes. And another group that we will probably cover at some point is the Unification Church popularly known as the Moonies, but they don't like to go by. They were much bigger, like in the eighties as well. Like where like the Moonies had a very evangelistic send people out and they were much more visible. Now they're a much more lower key. (laughs) They're important because they established some of the early right wing media, like the Washington Times, which is popular now with Christian homeschooling families in the yeah, DC and metro it started area. as like, yeah, and it started as like a just a regular old newspaper, but yeah. the Unification Church bought it out and essentially hollowed oh, okay. out the Washington Times and turned it into an ideological. Newspaper. newspaper and Christian, the Christian right in that region sees it as their alternative to the uh, Washington Post. So it was yep. an early, yeah, hollowing out of real media and turning it into a right wing Christian parallel media. So, so where are we? Yeah. Like, what, what, we've touched on a lot of stuff. We need to close this episode. <laughs> um, we're, so we're, we're talking about a, about a century of these different streams of thought, these themes and ideas and groups evolving parallel to each other with occasional crossover. We've come to a point where the really divergent groups are pretty closely knit together and there is all kinds of cross-pollination and it's in many cases it's impossible to distinguish between some of them. We're going to we're going to quickly go through some of the political themes that have come out of these these movements. So the not just post-war but also pre-World War II anti-communism. So that which in that but before World War II it was it was generally seen as an, a reason that we should not get in, involved in World War II that we could not so Father Coughlin for example didn't want Coughlin didn't want us to work with didn't want the americans to side with the soviets for for any reason right so eventually everybody gets on board board for world war ii but in the ensuing cold war the post-war anti-communism is a really a shared thread it's going to unite people like norman vincent peel who was the trump's family pastor Ezra Taft Benson from the Mormon leader, Billy Graham, historical Catholic anti-communism among predominantly white Catholics. And we're going to talk about, we're going to talk about white supremacy in the, from the opposition to early civil rights movements, to opposition to racial integration and the influence of lost cause civil war mythology in this movement. The, the So this what the reason that you're seeing school curriculums that valorize the Confederacy that say slaves that is, didn't enslave people didn't really have it that bad. That's that's going to be very explicit at times, and they're also going to try to hide it at other times. We, this is we're going to see the anti-government ideology, so opposition to the New Deal, opposition to government programs that are designed to help white swaths of people in the first place, and also the combining with a certain. I'm going to say Pentecostal concerns, like the idea that the, the satanic panic, the idea that were there were witches possessing students in schools, the fear about the new world order and the Illuminati merging with the theological beliefs about the rapture and in times. So 
a lot of common themes yeah. there that sort of move together in weird ways. In weird ways. I know. As I was going through that, I was like, this makes no sense. But <laughs> we will get into that later in the course of this. And I want to say also that the role of the family and conservative sexual norms, family values, strict gender distinctions, the idea that women are keepers of the home and carers for the children, authoritarian disciplining of children, like capital punishment, opposition to abortion and LGBTQ rights, along with the abstinence movement in high schools. Yeah. And <laughs> there's a couple of, I've got some notes here too. Like, I think another really big important theme that came out of these different movements was the, the emergence of an alternative ecosystem for news and entertainment the like the seeking of religious peers as a source of information and news and a distrust of secular sources and like that fundamentalist impulse to find a pure version uncorrupted by secularism to either biblical criticism or eventually like entertainment music news whatever that produced a huge world of like safe entertainment and news inside of inside of Christian Protestantism. And it eventually merged with what like writer David Brock talked about as the right wing noise machine, like the world of think tanks and conservative political publishing houses, that world of media and news that Christians built for themselves ended up becoming essentially one in the same with that conservative political communications machinery. And that's what you now see today. Like the fruit of that is the Fox News, Breitbart, huge pool of deeply isolated news and entertainment. And it's grown to the point where someone in these groups can essentially totally submerge themselves in a news and entertainment and and cultural world where the New York Times doesn't exist. And that grew out of that isolation impulse that I think we saw in these, in the, in the, doctrinal and movement threads here. There's also like this theme of deep alarm at multiculturalism and like a post-religious cultural consensus or secularism in countries. In a lot of ways, like the religious right, the loss of that voice of cultural authority that especially American Protestants had for much of America's history has led to a real sense of being under attack and a resentment at having to stay quiet or not being able to put forth a doctrinal position and have it treated as a reason to change civic law. For a long time, that was something that could be done because of the level of like dominance of public discourse that the Protestant you know, Christianity had in America. But the loss of that isn't perceived as being like an increased in equality for people who aren't Protestant Americans. It's seen as an assault on their, their identity and their ability to just do what is right. And you see that theme through a lot of what the Christian right talks about. And then the final one is like the the Reagan alliance, basically, the the tipping point in the late 70s, early 80s, where the GOP in particular explicitly courted and allied with fundamentalist evangelicals and reconstructionists to establish a new coalition to retake like the White House and government. And yeah. that Reagan alliance has been hugely influential and really accelerated the shift of a lot of those different movements that had been near each other and had some overlapping ideas. It, it shaped them crafting, being crafted into the religious right as a dominant political force that is like essentially joined at the hip with the conservative political movement in the GOP. Yeah, this is what produces the Christian right that we came into contact with as children. Yeah. 
It's where all those threads that we've been talking about over a hundred years really start coming together. That was the actual forging of that alliance and coalition. The specific one. It was not the beginning of the Christian right, but yeah. Yeah. We need to tie this up. (laughs) Uh, I'm happy that we got in below an hour and a half, so I think we're good. I I thought we would go longer. We want you to follow us. I'm Kristen Rawls on Twitter. So it's at K-R-I-S-T-I-N-R-A-W-L-S. Jeff is at Eaton, at E-A-T-O-N. You can follow the podcast on Twitter at C-Rightcast. It's all one word. And please check us out on Substack, where we hope to start posting transcripts of episodes very soon and where you can find out how to subscribe and help support us financially as we continue producing this content. And also that's where you can find show notes and sources that we used and places to read more on these kinds of topics. So next week, should I say what we're going to do? Yeah, yeah. Let's give a teaser here. Yeah, next week I am going to give an episode about Norman Vincent Peale, the author of The Power of Positive Thinking, and we're going to talk about his influence with the Trump family and and his influence over the Christian right as we know know it today. He turns out to be a much more important figure than I think a lot of people realize today that he he's seen as a political now. That was not the case. He was a very important Christian right figure and we're going to get into it next week. Sounds maybe sounds fun is the wrong word for a lot of these <laughs> topics, but it sounds fascinating. Thanks a lot. It's been okay. a pleasure and I'm shocked and delighted that we did manage to keep it as short as we did, considering how tangly it was. And hopefully we'll see you next episode. All right. Thank you so much.